The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hi, I'm Anna Caroline Henry, and today the scripture reading is from Exodus 20:16 and Proverbs 6, verse 6, or 16 through 19. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Anna Caroline, for reading it twice this morning. Uh, That's quite a task. So thank you uh, for that. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, My name is Paul Lim, and I've had the privilege and pleasure of serving here as a scholar in residence since 2016, as well as the uh, senior advisor for content for NIFW, National Institute for Faith and Work. Some of you may be familiar with that work of the latter institute, which is part of our church's mission and ministry. Um, As was just announced just a couple of minutes ago, we're going to have a uh, very um, hopefully helpful and informative uh, uh, fall semester class on foundations of faith and work. Um, Starting next Sunday, people from our own congregation will have an opportunity to learn about that, you know, how to connect my faith, my Christian journey with my work at whatever place it may be. It's a video curriculum produced by NIFW about that kind of thought connecting. And it'll be taught best of all by two of our beloved members of Christ Press, Todd Foster and Eli Haney. So it'll be starting next week. So it'd be great if you could register for that. Um, well, so today's commandment, so we got one more to go. And some of you are like, yeah, I'm done with those like burdensome commandments after next Sunday. And others like, I want more. So. Um, but a couple of, uh, I was speaking at Koinonia last Sunday, got to talk about the Eighth Commandment. Today we're on to number nine, and that is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a kind of heavy topic, so allow me to begin a little bit uh, lightly. So um, I, we're living in Nashville, Tennessee. It's the SEC country. So um, for those of you who are Alabama fans, uh, I'm not one, so I can be neutral. Alabama fans, uh, could you speak uh, fairly about Auburn fans? And Auburn fans among us, could you speak kindly about uh, Alabama fans or Ole Miss fans as opposed to Mississippi State fans? And you get the picture. It's the other that you do not like and you would rather not say anything kind or true about them because your instinctive desire is to speak not so well about your opponent, uh, kind of whatever it is. And I think, now we take that lightly, and others do not take it lightly. And so if it is a kind of ongoing rivalry of a couple of hundred years old, or maybe a couple thousand years old, and this really then kicks it up a notch, the kind of animosity or angst that is between two factions, whether it is nation states or university or college or team that you uh, support and sponsor, And so today's commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, is from that slightly light vantage point, and we'll get deep into what that actually may mean for us as we live into our life here in 2021 uh, in America. So what are some of the key words that we have just read? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Some key words to me would be 
false witness and your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? What does it mean to bear false witness? And so putting it conversely then, uh, those who are redeemed by the God of Israel were commanded to become people who will be true witnesses, right? True witnesses and someone who understands the basic ethical call of being a good neighbor. Rather than bearing false witness against my neighbor, God of Israel is calling all of Israel to be good neighbors by speaking truly and truthfully about them. To me, this commandment is requiring us to think biblically about what truth-telling is, how we are so prone to bending this commandment of truth-telling about our neighbors, and how the gospel of Jesus or the person and work of Christ dealt a mortal and redemptive blow to our problem of truth evasion. So the three points to our message are as follows. First, we'll look at the social function of truth-telling. Second, we'll look at the historical consequences of truth-bending. Third, we'll look at the Christological resolution of truth evasion. So social function, historical consequences, and Christological resolution. So let's take a look at the first point, social function of truth-telling. So in 2014, uh, Vanity Fair magazine and the TV news show 60 Minutes did a fascinating poll called Truth Be Told, where they asked 10 questions about the role of truth in society and their own personal relationship with or commitment to truth as an individual ideal or as a social higher good. One of the questions that was put to the, the surveyed people was, should you always tell the truth? Should you always tell the truth? The answer to this question was categorized according to one's educational level. All right, there are three groups, three educational group levels. First group uh, of uh, respondents had no college degree. Second group of respondents had college degrees. Third group of respondents had graduate degrees. All right, so let me ask you, which of these three groups do you think had the highest commitment to telling the truth? Some of you are laughing, so tell me why you're laughing. Which group do you think? The first one? The third one? First one, okay, all right. So let's see what the results were, okay? Um, so would you be surprised if I were to tell you that 62% of those with no college degree, 62% said that I'll always tell the truth no matter what. And that was highest number. That number drops by woeful 17 points to 45% among those with a college degree. That means less than half of college grads when they pick up their diploma with their cap and gown will be committed to truth-telling no matter what. Then when we move to people with graduate degrees, by the way, I've got a graduate degree or two or something. Some of you have graduate degrees. People like me and some of you, that number becomes 35%. That means about one out of every three persons with graduate degrees has a statistical likelihood of telling the truth not always, but sometimes. To me, that was really, really eye-opening. What's, you know, what's the you know, correlation between education and speaking truth? I don't know. Perhaps that sometimes would be when the act of telling the truth serves an expedient function of helping my own cause. 
This commandment that we hear so often, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, can be rephrased as you shall bear true witness for your neighbor. Speaking truthfully about our neighbor is so deeply connected with speaking truthfully also about our own self. We serve a God of truth, God who delights in truth, God who, who uh, uh, embodies truth, as we'll see later on in our third point. Another question which was slightly funny to me was this. Which of these four people do you lie to the most? Four people. They were doctor, mother, significant other, and boss. All right? Your doctor, your mom, your boss, or your significant other. Which one do you think got the highest percentage? People who got lied to the most, or that you wouldn't have any problem lying to? Let's start with the lowest then, okay? Lowest. So you're most, uh, least likely to lie to, to, with 12% was your boss. You're not likely to lie to your boss, 12%. 13% of those surveys said that they're likely to lie to their significant other, husbands and wives. And that was actually tied with the third category, that is doctor. 13% of people said, you know, I'll lie to my doctor about my condition. Do you feel pretty good or bad? I feel pretty good. And that's kind of normally regarded as okay. Then the highest percentage of people who are lied to would be moms. <laughs> moms in here, you should be irate when you hear it. It's like, what? Then as I read that number a couple of days ago, then I, my mind began jogging back to my own early childhood or adolescence years. When I lied to my mom about, hey, where were you, mom would ask, you know, how come you're home so late? And I would say, you know, I was actually helping some friends with the homework and so on and so on. When in fact, I was not doing anything of that sort at all. 17% of the people said that I wouldn't have a problem lying to my mother. That's why we should celebrate mom's roles in our children's lives so much more because they bear up with our weaknesses, knowing all of that. So the, according to the survey results, the more educated we are, the more likely we find advantages to our life to bend it like David Beckham's free kick. If you're soccer fans, David Beckham was a great soccer player, and what he was best known for, among other things, was that he could kick the, you know, sort of kick it from the corner, and it'll bend it like crazy, and it may actually go into score a goal. So sometimes we bend our truth like David Beckham's free kick. One, uh, one, one scholar I was reading, a scholar of a, a Hebrew a Bible or Old Testament, made a very interesting comment about the second table of the commandments. So we've been studying commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, honoring our parents, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, and today's uh, commandment of not bearing false witnesses. He said that these are given precisely because they're most often broken, disregarded, violated, and hardly adhered to. It made up the top 10 list of things to pay attention to precisely because they might be at the bottom of bottom 10 of things we actually care about and would care to obey and take seriously. That statement to me was simultaneously simple and profound. To put it differently, when God says fear not, God says so precisely because we are so prone to fearing. Did you know, by the way, that the commandment or not God telling the people of God, do not fear, is repeated throughout both in the Old Testament as well as in the New, thereby underlying the human commonality of fearing being found so rampantly in our life journey. So God says, do not fear, because we have so many occasions in which we find ourselves fearing. 
So this commandment, as I mentioned to you earlier, is not just limited to a courtroom context of speaking truthfully about our neighbor when he or she is brought to a trial. In all situations of life, truth-telling about the other has a crucial role for true flourishing of human communities. No matter what kind of society it might be, the vast human civilizations had codified the beauty and the goodness of truth-telling as a highly desired social good, and likely, in this case, commanded. So we are told to say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, whether with or without the help of God, depending on the state of the union, right? I read that in terms of oath-making, in the state of California, you don't have to use the language of with God, or so help me God. With the state of Washington, you do. So there is a lot of local variations, but we do realize that speaking truth is a highly desired uh, republic good. Not republican good, democratic, whatever it is, is a good that we all desire. As we know, friends, we have a war going on right now. We have a war going on, and what is that war? We, a war over representing the truth about the other. How do we speak about the other, whether it is an Alabama fan, if you're a diehard Auburn fan, and if you're a UT fan, then what, what's the other one? Is it uh, Vanderbilt? Maybe Vanderbilt is not, I don't know, but you get the picture, right? So we have this kind of war going on of representing the truth about the other. Right now, it seems to me that we have a war over masks and vaccines. To wear or not to wear has been a very challenging one. To be vaccinated or not vaccinated is also a very challenging one. I was talking to a friend of mine whose mother is in a, 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 a full-time care, and um, in the unit there is also kind of most of the people in that um, care, hospice care, are vaccinated, and 50% of those who are working there are not vaccinated. And so it's, depending on which side you're on, it also kind of generates a lot of very interesting heat and, uh, and less illuminating light. I was talking with the headmaster of a Christian school recently about the battle over this very issue of masks. It is a Christian elementary school and parents are divided. I suggested to my friend, what if we had a discussion about who is my neighbor? So on both sides, whether to mask or not, you got medical experts on both sides. So I said to my friend, you know, why don't you invite me and I'll come and I'll either Zoom or in person and I'll give them a theological uh, kind of perspective on whether you should mask or not. And I said, I'm kidding, I, I don't know about theological, but I will talk about this, neighbor, what it means to be a neighbor. And I said to him, you know, look, the first commandment that God gave to the people of Israel and to Christians is love your God with all your heart and mind, soul and strength, and then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So I said, hey, you know, why don't we do that? I, 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 I like that very much. And then, uh, and he said, and then what he said really kind of, uh, uh, freaked me out a little bit. He said, you know, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself has been chucked out the window. It's all about me, all about my child, not about your, you know, other people or my neighbor. We don't want to speak nicely about our neighbor who differs from us about masks or vaccines. That seems to be played out not only here locally in our city of Nashville, or Brentwood or Franklin, but also in our state of Tennessee and also throughout our country. So we kind of realize intuitively the importance of speaking truthfully about our neighbor because so often we're likely to fall into the trap of bearing false witnesses about our neighbor. I don't know about you, but I find myself toggling back and forth, you know, every kind of, a lot of days, you know, during the week from about 5 to 5.30 to about 6, 6.30 p.m. 
I try to watch the news, and, and inevitably I do this. And you know what I do? I go back and forth between CNN and Fox News. As sort of a sociological experiment, you know, when you watch about 30 minutes, each of these two major cable news uh, outlets, at least to me, one gets two very competing and contradictory versions of truth and facts and visions of the good life. Having said this earlier in, in, in our first service, and I realize that, you know, maybe in, in a setting like Christ's Press, if I say, you know, I watch both these, someone might say, you know, you should watch one, not the other. And a couple of weeks ago at Vanderbilt University, where I've been working for the last 15 years as a professor, I made exactly the same comment. And one of my friends came up and said, you should watch this channel, not the other. And you can fill in the blank, and I think your answer is probably going to be right. So you can see where our kind of country or communities are divided. And then it is all the more important for us to speak truthfully about our neighbor and who they are and what they stand for, even if you don't end up agreeing with them, precisely if you end up disagreeing with them. So I want to issue a congregational challenge, starting with me and, and all of us. We're bound to, we're likely to be bound to disagree with people about some key issues of our time. Maybe vaccine, maybe, maybe mask, maybe about whatever, human identity, or what does that mean to have our border, what is our border, who is my neighbor, and so on and so forth. But let's be such truth-telling witnesses of our neighbors so that even if they don't agree with your view about whatever the issue may be, that neighbor will say, yes, actually, you accurately represent me and my view, even though we diverge in terms of how to go about in pursuing that social good and goal. The social function of truth-telling is what, that without it, societies cannot ultimately flourish. That leads me to my second point, historical consequences of truth-bending. Let me start with a question here. What do Niccolo Machiavelli and Frederick Douglass have in common? You might say, what? Who are they? Machiavelli and Frederick Douglass. I've never heard of them while I was in school. Okay, if that describes you, then you're in for a good treat, I think. So one lived in Italy from about 1469 till 1527, and he was a diplomat and political philosopher. That would be Niccolo Machiavelli. The other was an African-American social reformer, abolitionist, newspaper publisher, who lived uh, between 1818 and 1895, born a slave in Maryland and escaped to freedom when he was about 20, he would be Frederick Douglass, and he became one of the tireless defenders of human rights and freedom for those who had been slaves, and for all of us, because unless I am free, unless you are free, I am not free, so he said. Machiavelli wrote this very uh, important political treatise called The Prince, which became a bestseller as a how to be a leader, whether in business or politics, and for centuries, it has been often one of the books to read when one studies Western civilization or Renaissance history. So Machiavelli, in his book, The Prince, said these things. Therefore, it is unnecessary for a prince to have all the good qualities, but it is very necessary to appear to have them. And I shall there say this, say this also, that to have them and always to observe them is injurious, but to appear to have them is useful, indeed beneficial. To appear merciful, to appear faithful, to appear humane, to appear religious and truthful. You should have flexibility of mind so that if and when you are required not to be merciful, faithful, humane, religious, and truthful, you may be able to pivot and change to the opposite without much trouble. 
In other words, when Machiavelli was teaching these would-be princes and princesses in Florence, Venice, and much beyond in 16th century Italy and Europe, and unto even today, was that you have to learn to appear to be truthful and bend truth if required so that you get your ultimate prize. And always justifies the means, according to Mr. Machiavelli. What about Frederick Douglass? Also spoke about the importance of truth, this time in the way that we remember the past. Speaking in front of a crowd gathered to listen to one of the most effective orators for the cause of the abolitionist movement around his lifetime, Douglass said on July 5th, 1852 in Rochester, New York. So this is up north, and he said, the 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, and, and by the way, all the people gathered in Rochester's kind of, you know, celebration of 4th of July had been pro-abolitionists. And he was saying, you may rejoice, I must mourn. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all the other days in the year the gross injustice to which he is a victim. In other words, the 4th of July celebration to an enslaved American was vacuous, meaningless, indeed offensive. So this, is the, so this point is the historical consequence of truth-bending. We as human societies in 2021 have convinced ourselves, some of the many of us, at least in the West or in the developed world, that God may or may not exist, but we can certainly be good without God. Not, hopefully not in our con congregation, but there are people, many in the world, who believe that right now. That it is fair to say that for some people, we are living in a post-Christian era, which is ironically in some sense simultaneously post-secular. Are we really all right without God? We tell ourselves that it is okay. Surely people of God have not always spoken or lived truthfully about self, salvation, society, and savior. Both the recipients, readers, and uh, listeners of Machiavelli's masterpiece, The Prince, or Frederick Douglass's 4th of July speech in 1852, were Christians. The ones who were encouraged to have the appearance to be truthful and the ones who were excoriated for having lost in courage, courage to live up to the ideal of the 4th of July Declaration of Independence, were Christians. In other words, we have always in many ways failed. That's why we have the confession as was led earlier. Yet at the same time, God is bountiful in mercy and always without fail in terms of his justice. And he calls us to be a people who are willing to acknowledge our own responsibilities and fallibilities and call everyone else into following the Lord who is truth himself. So we have a problem of truth bending. We're not okay without God. We are not okay without God. We are in desperate need of a savior. I am in a need of savior. You are in a need of a savior, indeed the savior. We have bent the truth so that we came to believe that we don't need a savior as a society and that some people are superior than others based on ethnic or racial composition or according to socioeconomic status. Historical consequences of such truth bending require something truly, truly radical on God's part becoming one of us, showing us the way by becoming the way, showing us true life by embracing his own death, and showing us the errors of truth bending by sticking to becoming truth in all his life. That leads me to the third and the final point, that is Christological resolution of truth evasion. 
So by this third point, what I'm trying to say and convey is this. Christ said that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me as recorded in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the truth. Jesus, not only truth, spoke truthfully about himself, his mission, the Father who has sent him, the Holy Spirit, who was to come as another comforter and counselor, but also he spoke truthfully and truly about our condition, our identity, and the lies we have believed about ourselves, the lies we have believed about our God, the lies we have believed about the good life, the lies we believe ourselves about our neighbor. As he was standing in front of Pontius Pilate, who had, been, um, who had the authority invested by Tiberius Caesar Augustus, simply put, Emperor Caesar, the Roman emperor, to decide what was true testimony and what was false witness, to this Pontius Pilate, this is what Jesus said, as recorded in John 18.37. He said, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Testifying to the truth is a role of Jesus' mission. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what Jesus has done is to really kind of marry truth with himself and his identity in such a way that the two are basically inseparable. Everyone on the side of truth will listen to me. And I have come to this world. The incarnation was for the purpose of testifying to the truth about God, truth about you, truth about me, truth about this world, and how our problems and our, our desires can be fulfilled and resolved in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. To testify to the truth about Savior, salvation, and self. And you know what Pontius Pilate said then? He said, what is truth? Full of sarcasm and disdain, Pilate made mockery both of Jesus and the reality of truth and then walked out. So then, how did his words and work resolve our incorrigible tendency of truth evasion? Not tax evasion, but truth evasion as our collective problem. You might say, I'm not a tax evader, but we all tend to evade truth about ourselves. Allow me then to take us to the cross. I'm wrapping things up right now. So imagine we are there and in his literally dying moments, Jesus spoke seven times. And we want to focus on the three words of Jesus from the cross. Number one, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is a true statement about us. They know not what, we, what they do. Yet we tend to assume the default mode of truth evasion. We say, yeah, that was spoken to about and about the people right in front of Jesus. But by application in our act of reading the New Testament, it is also about us. What truth is Jesus saying? Among other things, Jesus is saying, we need forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And that we don't often know what on earth we are doing or talking about. Not only do, do we need ethical forgiveness, but also we also need epistemological guidance that we don't know. So we need that guidance from the Lord. We don't know what we do. Second statement is, I thirst. Jesus came as a full-bodied and full-blooded human being. He didn't come as half man and half God. No, to our problem of truth evasion, Jesus says, I thirsted on the cross to show you my full humanity. So do you want to know what it means to be a true and full and truly flourishing human being? Jesus would say, look at me and follow me. Follow my version and vision of truth em embracing rather than evading and then follow me. The third statement is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This statement tells us that Jesus, as our federal head or covenant representative, spoke for all human dilemmas in his dying moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling or experiencing forsaken by God. Have you ever felt that? I felt it many times, and I'm guessing that all of us, at least at one point in our life journey, felt forsaken by or disappointed in God or disillusioned by this life in some ways. We go our default mode of truth evasion. Rather than really squaring it up and say, Yo, you know what, Jesus felt that, so maybe I can go to Jesus. We, always, we may say, oh, hey, I, I feel forsaken. I feel God forsaken. I feel really depressed and whatever else. But I will go to the pathway of self-medication with video games or self-medication with a drink or two or three or a bit of weed or Oxycontin or whatever else. I will not feel forsaken after that with my pathway of self-medication. Heck, I'll even seek human companions in pleasure-seeking by hooking up, and then I will not feel God's forsaken. That is our own versions of truth evasion. Jesus experienced what it means for all of us to feel forsaken by God, and in his act of obedience uttered, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, by the way, was you know, wrongfully convicted. Did you know that? He was wrongfully convicted of the crime he did not commit. And yet he was executed by the Roman authorities. And Jesus, as our role, not only as our redeemer, but, but also as our role model, shows us what it means to actually have these kind of bent truth and half truth, which is half lie, fully kind of thrown at our direction. You don't like being misrepresented, do you? I don't. Recently, something like that happened to me. And then I was really, you know, somebody said something completely untrue about me in public. And I was like, What? And then my quickest instinctive desire was to shoot back and say, you know, whatever. But then it gave me some time to really think about that. It gave me really some time to think about how should and would I respond. And that's something that we all face, whether in elementary school or grad school or, you know, looking at life of retirement and, you know, hanging out with your grandkids. Whatever age or stage you may be, you get sometimes mis misrepresented. People speak wrongfully about you, maliciously about you. And then in that moment of dilemma, will we retaliate by speaking falsely about them? How do we do this? This is part of our own dilemma here. We all have problems of varying degrees with telling the truth about our neighbor or about ourselves. We tend to bend it like Beckham or evade it like all of us do so, so expertly. Yet that's not going to be the final word. Jesus, who became full of grace and truth, invites us to face the reality of that saving truth of Jesus. He came to shine in our darknesses, in our shame. He came to shine upon our sin and our areas where no one, not even our parents, not even your bestie, not even your spouse may know. Jesus, this Jesus says, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So before we become censorious or self-righteous, I want to close with this important words um, uh, from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he was a very important writer, Catholic writer who influenced people like um, J.R.R. Tolkien as well as C.S. Lewis. And there was a, around the 19-teens, there was a newspaper kind of question about what is wrong with our world. There are a lot of things that are going on that are terrible in our world. What is wrong with our world? To which G.K. Chesterton answered to the question, what is wrong with our world? I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's the problem with the world? Let's start with me. I am. 
I am part of the big problem. Rather than pointing the finger at somebody else and says, you are the problem. So the house cleaning begins within the house of God. And as we come to the house of God, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus offered that last supper, which the Christian church has commemorated as a sacrament, as a firstly, as a meal, now in this fashion. As somebody says, it's a snack. It's not a snack. It's a sacrament, which symbolizes and really signifies the communion we have with one another and also with the living God. So let's come to this Christ who shows us what truth is, who embodies that truth, and who has spoken truthfully about his neighbor, that is you and me. Let's pray. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for these words of liberation as well as poignant truth about ourselves. We bend truth. We evade truth. We do not like to face the truth about ourselves. We would like to speak falsely and maliciously against our neighbors. And Lord, we come to you knowing all of that. We, in fact, come to you knowing that you know all of these things even before we open our hearts to you. As we come to the table of communion, firstly with you and with one another, help us in this community to be truth seekers and truth speakers in such a way that our neighbors, wherever and whoever they may be, whatever political persuasion, whatever medical perspective, that we will come to realize that though we may differ, we will speak truthfully about their uh, perspective and standpoint, and may the Christian church continue to be the pillar of truth and mercy in all that we are, in all that we do, Lord. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.